Good morning, everyone. I really am thrilled to see you all here. And, and this is why. Um, today is a huge day on campus. I mean, we're a smaller, lighter crowd, and I, I thought it probably would be like that. There, there are, how, how many breakout gatherings were there today? Something like seven-ish, plus this worship option and Love EMU Day, and they're doing various things in the commons, including uh, caffeinated things and sugary things, and, um, and later it's uh, SGA Day, and so I just thought, oh my goodness, that, it, it, I don't know, it feels like we're already in the Easter celebration, and here we are in, in Holy Week moving toward the Easter celebration. This is set-apart space for campus worship, and I'm Brian Martin Burkholder, a university chaplain, and delighted to, to be gathered today. There are three spaces on campus working with Holy Week Easter-type things. Um, one is an interfaith space, uh, one of the breakouts. Um, learning about um, the differences in, in uh, Easter celebrations and Lent celebrations or, or observance, I should say, from an Eastern Orthodox perspective and a Western Catholic perspective. There's also the Latino Student Alliance has their comunidad, a Latino comunidad um, breakout, and they have a, a Catholic-oriented worship space this morning and then us. So I encourage us to think about being one of a three-part series uh, on Holy Week, on following Jesus, on uh, embracing the path toward, toward the cross and beyond the cross. We are, we are featuring today um, a, a book and an author, right? And the book you, you saw maybe on the table back there, How, How Jesus Waged Peace Throughout Holy Week. Now, the, the, the title of the book is Fight Like Jesus. There you see it. How Jesus Waged Peace Throughout Holy Week. And um, I've started reading this, this book um, as a framing for this journey through Holy Week. Like, I'll already Palm Sunday. Um, I'm not going to give it away, Jason, but uh, at our worship service, it was pretty much like what you say in the book. And, and I, I think you'll say more about this later, so I'm not going to say more. Intriguing, I hope. Um, as I move through Monday, Thursday, the, the last supper that Jesus had with the disciples before he was um, turned over, arrested, betrayed, all those words, um, and he uh, washed the feet of the disciples and introduced a, a more meaning around sharing bread and wine. And then Good Friday um, service at our church, it will be from light to dark as we acknowledge Jesus on the cross and dying and being entombed. Uh, and then some people will have a a, an Easter vigil on Saturday, some churches, leaning into this retelling of the story toward Easter. Some Easter vigils end at midnight, uh, so that at 12.01 a.m., it's Easter, and, and there's the celebration right there, bursting with life. Um, I, I'm not one who, who tends to be at that service, but there's one at four o'clock in the afternoon, 
at Muhlenberg Lutheran Church that I may be at. Um, it, it's a family-friendly one, good for children as well. And then Easter Sunday, what a celebration, what a feast. This is Holy Week. Jason Porterfield, the author of the book I referenced, it grew up in a Southern Baptist tradition and through careful biblical study has come to believe that Jesus calls his followers to be peacemakers. Jason brings a unique voice and fresh eyes to help us learn new things about Holy Week and Jesus' radical invitation to all of us. Now, Jason is a graduate of Messiah College in Pennsylvania and will soon be there speaking in, in, in their chapel spaces, uh, has a master's degree from Fuller Theological Seminary, and he's the author of Fight Like Jesus, How Jesus Waged Peace Throughout Holy Week, where he shares stories from real-life experiences in a powerful way. Um, the introduction to the book is from Scott McKnight, and Scott was, has been on campus uh, as our Augsburger lecture speaker in the past. I appreciated his voice, too. We're going to open with um, worship singing three songs led by Sarah, come on up, and Joshua, and then a scripture focus, uh, and then Jason, we're delighted to be with you. And for those who are connecting online, we're glad that you're here. Um, May this week be deeply meaningful for you all. Thank you all for joining us this morning. Let's enter into a time of worship singing oceans. You call me out upon the waters the great unknown where feet may fail and there I find you in the mystery in oceans deep my faith will stand and I will call upon your name and keep
trust is without borders. Let me walk upon the waters wherever you would call me. Take me deeper than my feet could ever wander, and my faith will be made stronger in the presence of my Savior. Spirit, lead me where my trust is without borders. Let me walk upon the Just be 
knows where you'll find me, where you are. Hold your heart, hold your heart. Come to me, find your rest in the arms of God who won't let go. So when you're on your knees, an answer seems so far away. You're not alone, stop holding on and just be there. Your world's not falling apart, it's falling into place. I'm on the throne, stop holding on and just be stand with us for this last song to proclaim this. We're going to sing Tremble.
pray with me. Lord God, we thank you for this morning, for all that is happening on campus space at EMU today and the way that you are showing up here. We thank you for this message of peace that you bring to us this morning, that you overcome all darkness and as the light of the world, you bring ultimate peace to us. I pray that we cling on to that message this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. This morning's scripture reading is from John 12, 12 to 19. It reads, The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all of this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Thank you, Sarah, for reading that. Thanks, Brian, for the kind introduction earlier. And thank you once again, Sarah, and I didn't catch your name, Joshua, for leading us in worship and helping center our hearts and minds on God this morning. Well, like Brian said, my name is Jason Porterfield, and I am thrilled to be here with you today. It's my first time to actually walk around on the EMU campus. Uh, a little about myself. I did not grow up in a Mennonite tradition. My parents actually both served in the military, which meant we moved all over the place when I was young. But we eventually settled in Pennsylvania and started to attend a Southern Baptist church. Uh, I actually have very fond memories of, of this church. Uh, you know, that was full of very caring and compassionate people who taught me to love Jesus and to love the scriptures. Though I must admit, it was also a very patriotic and very pro-military congregation, which makes sense, especially because the church was located right next to a Navy base and an Army base. <laughs> For college, I chose to attend what is now called Messiah University. It was Messiah College when I was there. And it's a historically Anabaptist school. Uh, you know, a couple weeks into my freshman year, 9-11 happened. 
And this, that event, it just profoundly shaped my time at college. In fact, it felt like everyone on the campus, students and faculty, we were grappling together with questions of war, violence, terrorism, and, and what does it mean to be followers of the Prince of Peace? In the spring of my sophomore year, the United States began to continually bomb Iraq. It was called the Shock and Awe Campaign, and it was televised. I have distinct memories of guys on my floor hosting watch parties and ordering pizza. And I wasn't a pacifist yet, but I remember being deeply troubled to see followers of Jesus treat the bombing of real-life people as entertainment. My senior year, a Catholic peace activist came and spoke at our morning chapel Partway through his talk, a third of the students got up and walked out, and we met in a gymnasium, so they stomped on the metal bleachers as they left, causing so much noise the speaker couldn't continue his message. Well, by the time I graduated from Messiah, my Mennonite friends had convinced me that peacemaking and care for the marginalized were both at the heart of what it means to follow Jesus. So on January 1st, 2007, I packed my bags, said goodbye to friends and family in Pennsylvania, and flew across the continent and moved into Canada's poorest neighborhood. It's a section of Vancouver known as the downtown east side. And despite being quite small in size, geographically speaking, on any given night in the downtown east side, you'll find around 5,000 residents struggling with drug addictions. 1,200 experiencing homelessness, and over 900 women trapped in prostitution. I moved to the downtown east side because I felt called to cultivate shalom in this place where it was so painfully absent. I believed God was asking me to contend for the flourishing of this beautiful yet broken community. But if I'm honest with you, it didn't take long before my neighborhood's brokenness broke me. The drugs were so powerful, the poverty so pervasive, and to top it all off, my neighbors were reeling from the recent news that an out-of-town pig farmer had just confessed to killing 49 women from my neighborhood. 49. You know, the combination of so many destructive forces at work in the downtown east side, it soon proved too much for me. Despite thinking of myself as a peacemaker when I moved there, it quickly became obvious that I had no idea how to make peace. I mean, don't get me wrong, because of my years at Messiah, I, could, I knew Jesus' peace teaching like the back of my hand. You all probably know many of it, much of it too, right? Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Bless those who curse you. Do not violently resist an evildoer. Turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. When it came to Jesus' peace teaching, I could quote it verbatim, but I had no idea how to apply it, at least not within the messiness and complexity of my neighborhood. And I suspect some of you here today can relate, because after all, you don't have to live in a place like the downtown east side to know that injustice is rampant in our world today. I mean, you know this. We live in an age of ever-increasing violence, vitriol, and polarization. And so, 
if like me, you long to make a positive difference in our world, but you feel ill-equipped, you don't know where to begin, well, I have good news for you this morning. You see, I've become convinced that if you want to learn how Jesus makes peace, if you want to actually become an effective practitioner of His approach to peacemaking, then there's no better place to look than Holy Week. So why do I say that? Well, when you take the four Gospels and combine them together, a third of their content is dedicated to covering Jesus' last week, what we call Holy Week, which means Holy Week is the main stage on which we get to see Jesus put all of his previous peace teaching into action. We get to see Jesus apply that teaching. But even more than that, at the very start of Holy Week, Jesus himself revealed that peace was what was on the forefront of his mind as he entered into his final days. You know, as Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, the Gospel of Luke tells us that the crowds were shouting cheers, but Jesus was shedding tears. We often overlook that. And when he could hold back his grief no more, Jesus cried out for everyone to hear, if only you knew on this of all days the things that make for peace. I often wonder if tears are still streaming down Jesus' face as he looks at his church today and weeps and says, if only you knew the things that actually make for peace. So this morning, we're going to look at the events of Holy Week through the lens of peacemaking. First, I'll discuss Jesus' triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. Then I'll give a quick overview of the middle days of the week before we slow down on Thursday evening and Friday morning. All that in 15 minutes or less. So buckle up and let's get started. You ready? So nowadays, when we think of Palm Sunday, we think of it as the first day of Holy Week. But for Jesus and his contemporaries, the day actually marked the start of the week-long Passover festivities. During this week, devout Jews from far and wide converged upon Jerusalem in order to celebrate the time God liberated his people from Egyptian enslavement. Well, for a people struggling under the yoke of yet another oppressive empire, this time Rome, Passover also served as a painful reminder that they were no longer free. With so many people dreaming of independence all gathered in one place, it probably doesn't surprise you to learn that Jerusalem often became volatile during Passover. And because of this, Rome required that their provincial ruler be in Jerusalem during Passover and to bring with him substantial military reinforcements. So on the year that our story takes place, Pontius Pilate left his home on the coast of the Mediterranean and he marched a massive army east to Jerusalem. Such a show of force was meant to deter all thought of rebellion. But on this particular Passover, Word spread that another man, also endowed with power, was making his way to Jerusalem, and his procession was approaching from the opposite side of the city. 
the Gospel of John, the passage that Sarah just read, it tells us that the crowds rushed out to meet Jesus precisely because they heard he had raised Lazarus from the dead. If this man could control death itself, then perhaps he had the power to defeat Rome. Well, the Gospels describe the crowds doing four things once they went out to meet Jesus. Four things as Jesus made his not-so-triumphal entry into Jerusalem. First, they shouted, Hosanna. They quoted a psalm, laid their coats on the ground, and waved palm branches. We often do many of these actions, right, when we commemorate Palm Sunday. What, what do these four actions actually signify? Let's start with the word Hosanna. I always thought Hosanna was a word of adoration, similar to like hallelujah, that it meant like praise God. But Hosanna, it's actually the Aramaic form of a two-part Hebrew word, Hoshia and Na. Hoshia means help us, deliver us, liberate us, save us. And the ending Na, it adds a sense of urgency. So when fused together, Hoshiana or Hosanna, it means Liberate us now, deliver us, we plead, save us, we pray. In essence, it was a cry for help. Second, we read that the crowd recited a line from Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But then they added a few words not found anywhere in that psalm. They declared Jesus to be their king, quote, the king of Israel. Third, Matthew tells us that the people spread their coats on the ground for Jesus to travel over. Now, such an act probably seems strange to you and me, but for Jesus' coatless onlookers, they knew precisely what they were doing, for this was a customary way to coronate a new king. It's what the Israelites did, for instance, when Jehu was crowned king in 2 Kings chapter 9. And finally, the palm branches. Now, I always thought that palm branches kind of functioned like the, the ancient equivalent of those giant foam hands you see at sporting events. Like, I thought waving them meant like, you're awesome, Jesus, I'm your number one fan. But that's not what they meant. You see, it turns out in Jesus' day that palm branches were a politically loaded symbol that reminded the Jewish people of a significant historical event. So let's go back in time now, 200 years. At that time, the Seleucid Empire ruled over the region. And in 167 BC, their king ransacked Jerusalem and desecrated the temple by killing and slaughtering an unclean pig upon the altar and then sprinkling its blood throughout the temple. The king then ordered all the towns of Judah to offer sacrifices to his gods. But in the small little town of Modain, there was an aging Jewish priest named Mattathias who refused to comply. He killed the king's inspector, tore down the altar, and then fled to the hills. Soon after, Mattathias' health deteriorated, so he gathered his five sons around him, and his dying words to them were these, Avenge the wrong done to your people. Pay back the Gentiles in full. Impressive dying words. Well, his middle son, Judas, he picked up that battle cry 
And he led a fairly successful rebellion against the Seleucids. In fact, Judas proved so fierce in battle, they gave him the nickname Maccabeus, which means the hammer. Under his leadership, Judas the hammer Maccabeus, he he actually recaptured most of Jerusalem, including the temple. And as Judas made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem and proceeded to cleanse the temple, guess what his followers waved? Not giant foam hands, but palm branches. From then on, palms became the definitive symbol of Israel's quest for independence. In fact, as the Maccabean revolt gained ground, they started to mint their own coins. They thought, we're going to become our own nation again. And on the coins, they imprinted a palm tree, and they encircled the symbol with the battle cry, for the redemption of Zion. Even decades after Jesus, palms remained a key symbol of the Jewish people's nationalist aspirations. During the Jewish revolts against Rome in 66 and 135 AD, for example, insurgents once again thought, we're going to get our independence, and so they started to mint their own coins. And once again, they put the palm as the symbol for their freedom. So given all this, When we read that the crowd waved palm branches as Jesus passed by, we shouldn't envision this as a mere act of adoration. They were not simply praising Jesus. Rather, back then, palm branches carried the exact same meaning as a separatist movement's flag does today. Waving them signified a desire to break free from foreign occupation. And what's more, waving them at Jesus meant they thought Jesus would be their liberator, that he would lead the rebellion. Well, thankfully, Jesus was not caught off guard by the crowd's misguided expectations of him. In fact, after all, this was not the first time a crowd tried to make Jesus their puppet king. So as Jesus prepared to enter Jerusalem, He knew the crowds would assume he was coming in the likeness of Judas Maccabeus to bring a hammer down upon the Romans. So he prepared a response beforehand. And in my opinion, Jesus' triumphal entry is one of the most brilliantly planned prophetic actions in human history, masterfully choreographed. It was street theater at its best. So, how did Jesus script his procession, his counter-procession, into Jerusalem so that it might showcase his alternative approach to peacemaking? Well, first we read that instead of riding a war horse like Judas Maccabeus had once done and as Pontius Pilate had just done, Jesus chose to ride into the city on a donkey. In antiquity, donkeys were a symbol of peace. And John's gospel explicitly states that Jesus chose to ride a donkey in order to align himself with Zechariah's vision of a peaceable king. This vision, it's found in, the chap- in chapter 9 of Zechariah, and it tells of a coming king. It's, hard, it's easy to overlook just how radical this is. It tells of a coming king who will speak peace not just to his own people, but to all nations. And in fact, this king will remove the weapons of war from his own people. Well, the timing and the route of Jesus' triumphal entry also point to his way of making peace. 
For you see, Jesus made his way into Jerusalem on the first day of Passover. You already know that. It was also the 10th day of the Jewish month of Nisan. And according to Mosaic law, on this day, every family was to select a lamb, the Passover lamb, to be sacrificed four days later. The sheep were supplied from Bethlehem, and they were brought into the city through its northeast gate, which was known as the Sheep Gate. Well, so too Jesus, who was born in Bethlehem, made his triumphal entry on the day when suppliers brought their lambs into Jerusalem for worshipers to select. As Jesus descended the Mount of Olives, his route into the holy city joined up with the route traveled by the sacrificial sheep, and Jesus almost certainly entered into Jerusalem through the same gate, the sheep gate. In other words, Jesus used his triumphal entry on Palm Sunday to subtly yet unambiguously declare that he was not the hammer of God, he was the lamb of God. Well, it took four days for the crowds to realize that Jesus had no intention of bringing a hammer down upon the Romans. On Monday, Jesus drove out of the temple the money changers and animal sellers, thus putting a stop to their exploitative practices. Then we often overlook the next part. Jesus welcomed into the temple court those who were forbidden from entering. The lame and the blind came to Jesus, and he healed them. On Tuesday, Jesus warned the religious leaders that their immoral actions were hurting the poor and themselves. And then Jesus told his followers that a day was coming when the whole world would seem to erupt into war. Nation would rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. But you, he said, he said, you are not to participate in the fighting. On Wednesday, Jesus dined in the home of a leper and came to the defense of a marginalized, unnamed woman when his own disciples berated her. And Thursday, numerous events happened on Thursday that have profoundly shaped the church's peacemaking vocation. Let me name just a couple. First, Jesus washes his disciples' feet, and he states that his followers must also empty themselves of power stoop down and serve both friend and foe. Don't forget, Jesus washed Judas's feet. Then Jesus infused the Passover meal with scandalous new meaning. If he had been a violent Messiah like so many wanted him to be, he would have torn the bread and poured the wine and said, this is my enemy's body, break it for me. And this is my enemy's blood, Shed it for me. Instead, as Catholic peace activist John Deere once wrote, Jesus turns that logic upside down and offers a new covenant of nonviolence, saying, This is my body broken for you, and this is my blood shed for you. Immediately after this, Jesus models his commitment to nonviolence by warning of Judas's betrayal, yet he allows Judas to leave unharmed, despite the fact that it was at least 12 men against one. And then hours later, 
in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's nighttime now. And a mob emerges from the darkness, armed with clubs and swords to arrest Jesus. But like good Texans, which is my home state now, the disciples stood their ground. They hadn't gone looking for a fight, but they sure weren't going to back down from one either. So they actually asked Jesus, Lord, should we fight? But because this answer seems so obvious, they don't even wait for Jesus to reply. Instead, Peter pulls out his sword and hacks off the ear of the high priest's servant. But then, before the violence could escalate any further, Jesus intervenes. No more of this, he shouts with an air of authority that stops everyone in their tracks. Thus, proving words can be more powerful than weapons. He heals the servant's ear. And then he says to Peter, put your sword back in its place. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. And it's at this moment, when Jesus told the disciples that they were not permitted to fight, it was then that they all abandoned him. Well, the next day on Friday morning, Pontius Pilate presents the crowds with a choice. And it's a choice I believe each of us must make. Who do you want me to release to you? Barabbas or Jesus? Do you remember why Barabbas was in jail? It was because he murdered someone in a past insurrection attempt. In other words, Barabbas, even though he was a failed insurrectionist, at least he had proven his willingness to kill our enemies and fight for our freedoms. And so when we, and and I say we here because I think we're meant to see ourselves in the crowds. When we realize that Jesus would not bring a hammer down upon our enemies, we chose one who would, Barabbas. And then we picked up a hammer and we nailed Jesus to a cross. One last point. Do you remember what Jesus' dying words were? They couldn't have been more different than Mattathias' dying words. Avenge the wrong done to your people. Pay back the Gentiles in full. Those were Mattathias' dying words, and they sparked a violent revolution. But when we nailed Jesus to a cross, the first thing he instinctively thought to say was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And those dying words also sparked a revolution, albeit a nonviolent one. So during this week, Holy Week, here's my prayer for you. For those of you that have not grown up in a peace church tradition, I pray you'll let go of your hammers and embrace instead the way of the Lamb. And for those of you that have grown up in a peace tradition, don't just cling to your peace tradition. Rather, cling to the one who is the source from which your peace tradition first originated. Embrace the Lamb of God once again and His way of making peace, peace through radical forgiveness, costly love, and a willingness to be killed but never to kill. Our world desperately needs more peacemakers. 
and I hope you'll commit to being one. I have a question, a follow-up question, and I think I'll, I'll ask this one for, for, for us. Um, so, I'm, I'm struck by the brilliance of, of, of the, the laying out all that you did and, and the study that went into you know, making all of those connections. Um, how did that happen for you? What, what inspired this project that led to the book, if you're willing? And, and it's fine to, to answer from there if you want to. Sure, yeah. So when I was in the downtown east side, I hit rock bottom. I mean, now I know I was burnt out. And so one day I went to church. I just dragged myself to church with what felt like my last ounce of energy. And it turned out to be Palm Sunday. And like most churches do, this church turned it into a joyous occasion. You know, the kids are wait, parading through the sanctuary, shouting Hosanna, the palm branches, right? All the songs are suddenly in a major key, no minor chords, right? And I was in no mood to participate. So I just sat in the pew and I cried out to God and just said, I'm a failure of a peacemaker. I have no idea how to make peace. Would you teach me? And so when the pastor began his, his message, I just wasn't in any mood to, to listen to it. So I thought, well, I'll just read the gospel accounts of Palm Sunday. And that's when I opened up randomly to Luke's gospel and saw that as the crowd shouted cheers, like I said, Jesus was shedding tears. And I had always overlooked it. Maybe it was because for the first time ever, my emotions matched our Savior's grief instead of the crowd's glee, right? And uh, when I read that, I just felt like God said to me, uh, if you want to learn how I make peace, then study the greatest peacemaker's greatest week, what we call Holy Week. So it's taken years to unpack the implications of that lament, but it was that day that I thought, what if this is the interpretive key that, to everything Jesus does throughout his final days? Yeah. yeah, thank you so much. Let's share appreciation if, if you have appreciated. And Jason has books here at, at the round table. I think he, what, what you said is you'll sell, sell them for your base rate, which is $10. And, um, and we hope to get one in our library as, as well. Um, I have an announcement to, to finish up, and that it relates to today being um, the seventh annual Love EMU Giving Day. Now, because we have the, the, the Facebook Live, um, the, the online um, opportunity of this hour, I wanna make one connect here. Um, we're off to a great start, according to our uh, Braden Hoover and the advancement team, uh, with gifts coming in from alumni and friends all over the world. And the focus for giving, and, and maybe I'm, I'm speaking as much to those online as, as in the room and maybe more, the focus uh, this time is on four um, funds that were pre-selected. However, um, we're also encouraging donors to give to the area that they find most uh, meaningful. And so as university chaplain with the Office of Faith and Spiritual Life, I would like to highlight our Compassion Fund as a possible place to receive donations today. Um, the Compassion Fund that I manage, along with others in student life, helps students with emergency needs maybe the cost of travel to go be with family in the situation of, of death. 
um, in the family or emergency needs like um, optical, re replacing glasses or dental. We don't usually pay maybe the whole bill, but we pay towards something to make it possible. Um, academic books in some cases or expenses related to housing or transportation if someone's having a harder time for a, a month or so. And donations can also be designated for the free food room. Who knows about the free food room? It's uh, the SFI, Sustainable Food Initiative Free Food Room that we also support. It's right over here in the um, Ammon Heat Wall House in the old, the previous garage space. We're looking for donations um, there so that we can keep some food available for students experiencing food insecurity. So if you, if you look at these links, um, go to the Love EMU link. This one you, is where donations can, can, be, can be placed today. And um, Braden told me that there's a way to designate uh, where, where you'd like the funds if it's not one of the four. I think you'd have to add that into a comment box. But one could also give directly to the Compassion Fund donation box. Uh, um, at the bottom of this web page, you'll see Compassion Fund, and donations can go there and be designated for the free food room or more, more generally. Just wanted to make that connection. I think it connects with peace building and being inspired by Jesus' love for the marginalized and those in need in a given situation. Right here in this space on Good Friday, no classes, offices are closed, faculty and staff are, are off, and there's an all-day worship service scheduled from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. right here. And it's a group of students who, who are coordinating that and inviting um, community partners and faith and spiritual life affiliates and others. It's a come and go uh, opportunity. If you're on campus, you're in the community and you would like to come for worship, scripture, prayer, um, yes, coffee, tea, and water, and folks will be bringing snacks too. You're welcome. Uh, that's, this space is, is des designated for that this Friday, and I'm grateful for those who are coordinating. There's also a chance to sign up to lead or to, to read scripture or to, to offer prayer, um, and if you're interested in that, you could reach out to me. Jason, thank you so much for being here. Um, thank you so much for writing this book. Go in peace waging peace in Holy Week and beyond. Amen.